We have been talking about Spirit of the Antichrist, and this is um, a rather lengthy series as we're going to look at a number of ways in which the Spirit of the Antichrist is manifest in our present age. And we're on part 10 today, and uh, we've been talking for the last 10 sessions about the Spirit of Pretense. And I wanted to point out that uh, if you're kind of paying close attention, you may recall that last week we were on part 8, and now today we're on part 10. That's because part 9 I recorded offline, and it's available uh, on the Not By Works YouTube channel and also the Not By Works website. So if you want to make sure you catch all the information, all the material, you can go back and watch part 9. But I did want to go ahead and move ahead to part 10 and just sort of close out this first section on spirit of pretense and spirit of the Antichrist. And we're going to close it out by talking about practical measures that we can use to avoid being deceived. Um, you know, uh, to review, we've talked about how the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. So again, I know we've talked about some heavy material as we've exposed a lot of lies and a lot of information that is true. And sometimes that can be kind of angering as you think about what the world really looks like when you take a chance and peek behind the curtain. But it's necessary because as Scripture tells us, we need to be alert and be aware of this spirit of the Antichrist that's already in the world or the fact that many Antichrists have already come, as the Bible tells us, or as Paul said, that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So this is very important information for us to be aware of. Uh, and, it, you know, of course, one-third of the Bible is prophecy, and half of that is yet to be fulfilled. So I think it serves us well to really dive into this information, uh, especially in these latter days. <clears throat> now, remember, the last days is the entire present church age from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to the present day. The church age is the last days. But the latter times refers to the you know, latter part of the last days or the last of the last days, we, we might say. Uh, we have a, a DVD entitled Top Ten Signs That We Might Be Living in the Last of the Last Days. Um, and so uh, as we look at Scripture in 1 Timothy 4, we see that during the latter times, some will depart from the faith. <clears throat> and what will they be doing? Well, they're going to be giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And that's why we've spent so much time uh, talking about the spirit of pretense, of deception. And again, we're told that in these last days, which again is the whole, this whole 2,000-year period, perilous times will come. And uh, we, we've talked about how when the Antichrist comes to start that seven-year period, when he signs the peace treaty, Daniel 9, 27, and ushers in that great day of the Lord's wrath, the final seven years of Daniel's 490-year prophecy, that he's going to do so with many lying wonders. So what we've been talking about is that deception is his M.O. By the way, you'll notice here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 that the, the uh, coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs. And so starting next week, we're going to get into the second manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist, and that's the spirit of phenomena. And we're going to talk about some of the, the uptick that we see in our present day in paranormal type phenomenalistic activity. And then one more verse here, in verse 10, he's also going to come with all unrighteous deception. And so there is a very solid biblical basis for understanding the Luciferian conspiracy headed by Satan 
in conjunction with his demons, which are one-third of the angels that fell with him. We talked about this several weeks ago. Uh, and then human agents. And so we do not wrestle against, uh, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. So as we look at seven manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist, we've been kind of camped out for several weeks now on the spirit of pretense. And we're asking, are we seeing any of these deceptive characteristics happen, happening uh, today? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. So I encourage you to go back and watch uh, session nine or part nine, which will uh, talk about some other lies and deceptions that are prevalent today. But, you know, it's clear that we have been deceived and uh, we want to be aware of that. So uh, to just review the overall roadmap of where we've been and where we're going, we started out by talking about the end times and the Antichrist and how angels and demons play a role in this cosmic struggle between good and evil. And then we sort of explained the, the Luciferian conspiracy and even diagrammed it out for you. And then we got into the first manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist, which is the spirit of pretense. And we looked at things like the state-run media, the false left-right paradigm, fake news and censorship. We talked about the Hegelian dialectic. And then we looked at geoengineering and weather warfare and vaccines and big pharma. And then the, the immediately preceding session, which again is available on our YouTube channel is false flags and eugenics. And so if you're interested in more study about this, I want to recommend several DVDs and also these are all available on our YouTube channel as videos, but we make them available as DVDs as well because some people like to be able to hand something to a friend so they can watch it or a relative. But all of these again uh, are available on our YouTube channel. But these go into much more detail on what we've been able to do in these uh, few sessions here. Uh, for example, The Great Last Day's Deception, Red, White, and Bad, Illuminating the New World Order. The, those top three that you see right there are all combined into one set called Globalism, Luciferianism, and the New World Order. And then we also have ones that touch on topics related to this, such as One Minute After the Rapture, uh, Signs of the Times, that's the one I mentioned a moment ago, and then also Ten Most Important Unfulfilled Prophecies in Scripture, a DVD called Waiting. So again, uh, if you know someone that could benefit from sort of studying these biblical doctrines of the end times, you might pick one of these DVDs up and uh, pass it on to them or send them the link on YouTube. So today we come to how do we guard against the spirit of pretense? Well, it starts by understanding the anatomy of deception. How does deception work in the first place? And to understand that, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible and like to follow along, we're going to spend some time this morning in Genesis chapter 3. And this is the account, of course, of where Satan, in the form of the serpent, comes and tempts uh, Eve. And so we read, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, previously, in the very first session of this so far 10-part uh, series, we talked about the meaning of that word cunning. It's the, the Hebrew word achrum means cunning or crafty or shrewd. It's used 11 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it might be worth mentioning that it's also translated prudent in a positive sense. So it's not evil in and of itself. This quality of shrewdness can uh, be used in a wise manner. In fact, the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 4, tells us the purpose of the Bible is to make believers prudent. And it's often translated prudent. But here in Genesis 3.1, it's used to describe an evil purpose. The serpent was more cunning 
And there's also a bit of a word play that goes on here. You can't really see it in the English, but if you recall, we won't take the time to go back and look at it, but in uh, Genesis chapter 2, we learn that Adam and Eve were naked. And the word naked is ahurim, ahurim. And this is ahurim. So there's kind of a, you know, a verbal word play going on there. The serpent was more ahurim than Adam and Eve, who were similarly ahurim. And their nakedness represented the fact that they were innocent, oblivious to evil. This was before the fall. They were blind to where the traps might lay. And Satan uh, certainly understood where the traps lay and was setting the traps for them. So he used his craftiness, his ahum, uh, to take advantage of their ignorance. So we know the tempter here, even though the Genesis text doesn't tell us, we know this was Satan in the form of a snake because Revelation chapter 12 refers back to this and this is in the midst of that final seven-year period. So don't let anybody tell you that that seven-year period that the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the overflowing scourge, uh, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the tribulation, uh, is not significant. It is significant. In fact, the Bible basically starts with this cosmic struggle between good and evil and deception and truth and ends uh, in a flurry with the, with the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And just uh, preceding that, you see this, this battle come to uh, a climax there in uh, the tribulation. The tribulation ends with the battle of Armageddon uh, and the coming of Christ to establish His earthly kingdom, which will be 1,000 years in length on the old earth, but it will continue in the new heavens and the new earth in perpetuity. So in that context, in the midst of that tribulation, we read, So the dragon was cast out, that serpent of old who was called Satan. Now this is talking about how at some point during the middle of the tribulation, Satan's going to be banished from heaven. Whereas right now, he has access to heaven. He can come and go, and he can confront God and accuse believers. We see that, for example, in the book of Job. But as this climax reaches an end, where Satan's going to be cast into prison for a thousand years, in the waning days of that battle, he's going to be cast out. But notice that he is the, uh, that serpent of old. He's the devil and Satan, and he's the one who deceives the whole world. So that's the reason that we've spent so much time on this subject of the spirit of pretense because it is critical that we understand uh, whether or not we have been deceived and in what ways we're being deceived. That is his primary MO. Um, the fact that Satan was manifested as a snake suggests that temptation comes in disguise and often quite unexpectedly. And it's interesting, I don't know if this we can make too much of this, but it's interesting that it often comes from a subordinate, someone whom one should have exercised dominion over. And, and certainly the Bible tells us in Genesis 1.28 that Adam and Eve had dominion over all the animals, and yet it was an animal, Satan in the form of a snake, who led them astray. It's also interesting to note that in the ancient Near East pagan culture, and remember, Genesis was written in 1446 to 1440, or 1406 rather, 40-year period, sometime in that time frame, uh, in the midst of this ancient or eastern pagan culture. Of course, we believe the Bible teaches a human history that is 6,000 years old, so the events of creation that Moses is revealing to us in the written word accord, occurred 4,000 B.C., but he's actually recording it under the written word in 1440s, let's say, B.C. And by then, there were all kinds of pagan religions in the ancient Near East, 
uh, where the wilderness wanderings took place. And many pagan religions use as a symbol the serpent, as a symbol of their religion. And uh, in fact, it's a symbol of life in many pagan religions. And so God's Word is reminding us that a pagan's symbol of life is in reality the cause of death, just the opposite. So divinity is not achieved, as Satan is going to suggest we'll see in a moment in Genesis 3. You know, divinity is not achieved uh, through the promise of Satan, the serpent. It's only achieved through Christ, through God's Word. God, the Creator, is the only one who can bring life. Remember what John said, speaking here of Christ, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. See, God is life. And in Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is life. Now, in our next message in the Hebrews series, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Trinity and the aspects of that. Uh, it's, it's certainly true that Jesus Christ is the Creator, and God is the Creator, and the Holy Spirit is the Creator. That's the reason in Genesis it's plural. Let us create man in our image. Plural, right? But God is the source of life. Later on in his epistle, John would put it this way. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. So there's a lot going on in Genesis 3 as the serpent, Satan, immediately usurps God's authority on earth, just like He tried to do in heaven, but He got banished from heaven. Then He comes to earth, and He tries to do the same thing all over again. You want life? Follow me. You know, God is a liar. He's, gonna, he's not going to do what He said He's going to do. He's got ulterior motives, which we're going to uh, talk about. So if we go back and sort of examine once again this encounter between Satan and Eve, we come up with five core components of deception. And again, in order to understand how to guard against deception and this spirit of pretense, it begins by understanding these core components. So the first thing uh, that we see Satan doing is he questions truth. He questions truth. If you look in verse 1 again, we read, as we said, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said? Has God indeed said? Did God really say that? I mean, can we really trust God's word? Can we really rely on him? In fact, can we really trust anything? That's really the underlying principle here. It's at the heart of Pilate's question to Jesus some 4,000 years later when Pilate said to him, what is the truth? What is the truth? So it begins by questioning truth. Satan planted a seed of doubt in Eve and said, Is God's Word, which today for us is the Bible, is it reliable or is it questionable? And deception always begins with this seed of doubt. So that's the first one. And then secondly, he moves on to misrepresenting the truth. He misrepresents the truth. Again, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, is that really what God said? Is Satan being fair to God by recasting what he said in those terms? Well, let's go back and look. What did God say in Genesis chapter 2? Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Well, that's a little different than you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. God said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And then he went on to say, but I want you to watch out for this one tree, only one in the entire garden, 
That's the one to watch out for because when you eat from it, you will die. And we also see that Eve, influenced by Satan's misrepresentation, likewise misrepresented God's word when she responded. The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, uh, nor shall you touch it. Now, is that what God said? Did God say anything at all about touching the fruit? Well, again, let's go back and look. He simply said, you shall not eat of it. No mention of touching it. And also, she downplayed the consequences. Again, because once Satan has planted a seed of doubt, then we begin to really try to parse the truth a little bit, and we forget what it means at its plain face value meaning. And so Eve had said, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, which he didn't say, lest you die. And that, of course, is not at all what God said. God said, you shall surely die. So kind of compare the two. Eve is saying, well, you know, we can't eat of this. We can't touch it. If we do, we might die. And God's word says, no, you can eat of any tree in the garden that you want. Just don't eat this one tree because you will most certainly die the moment you eat from it. So Satan misrepresented the truth. In essence, what he's saying is truth is a matter of interpretation. Truth is a matter of opinion. There is no absolute empirical truth. And this is the second step in this pathway to deception. It starts by questioning the truth and then misrepresenting the truth. You make it broader, less precise, open to interpretation and subject to opinion. Uh, the quest for deception always starts by questioning and misrepresenting truth. It's a moving target, according to this spirit of pretense, this great last day's deception. Truth is able to be manipulated. It's able to be spun. It's a matter of personal preference, right? So question the truth, misrepresent the truth, and the third step in this core component of deception is to directly contradict the truth. To directly contradict the truth. Look at what Satan says in verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. A blatant contradiction of what God had said. Satan blatantly and unequivocally negated the penalty of death that God had given. Remember, Satan is a liar from the beginning. Uh, and, you know, this is his lie, that one can sin and get away with it, and death will not be a problem. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 44. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. In other words, it's natural for him, because he is a liar and the father of it. But a little bit earlier in this passage, and in this, in this context here in John 8, is when Jesus is uh, confronting the scribes and Pharisees uh, regarding the woman called in, caught in adultery. And just shortly before he made this statement, Jesus had said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So we're contrasting here truth and a lie. And again, the reason we've spent so many weeks on just this first point, and by the way, we won't spend near as much time on each of the others. We may only spend one week on each of the other seven manifestations. Uh, but I wanted to really drive home the point, since the subtitle of this series is The Gathering Cloud of Deception, uh, that 
this is, this is something that's happening all around us, and we need to sort of uh, pull our heads out of the sand and, and wake up to uh, the truth. Yeah, question. Yeah. But do you think that also part of it, like, the way you asked that question, I'm sure that. Yeah. That seed of doubt, yeah. Do you think that part of it, I mean, we know that they don't sin in the darkness. Right. But did they have perfect faculties? Did they know, did they remember exactly the instance in the mind of what we as people remember that this is important to us remembering? Well, so the question is, just for the people to make sure they hear on the video, is was part of the sin here forgetting the Word of God? I, again, I don't think Adam and Eve could sin prior to the fall, and so there was no cloud around them. But clearly, after the fall, Satan had planted a seed of doubt so that ongoing it was more easy, easier to forget the Word of God. And that's the reason when you see through the, you know, in later times and the, through the children of Israel, they committed stuff to memory. They were constantly rehearsing the Word of God, uh, not only because it wasn't available in writing to the common people, and so everything was passed down verbally, but also because they, they understood they needed to hide the Word of God in their heart, like the psalmist said. So I think he sort of, I think it was the beginning of the sin of forgetting the Word of God or neglecting the Word of God, right? Yeah, no, I think they had absolutely a perfect memory before the fall. She knew very well what God had said. This was not just an innocent oversight. She was influenced by Satan's misrepresentation to then lie there at the beginning by, you know, sin there at the beginning by lying. Um, a little bit later in our study in Hebrews, we're going to talk about, you know, in the time of Christ or, or in the early days of the church, the early Christians there, in, in Jewish Christians, forgetting what they had learned and the dangers of that. You remember he says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you have come to need, again, basic milk. So there is a real danger there of growing, but then neglecting, and when you neglect, you forget, right? And again, that's why Psalm 119 reminds us, if we hide the Word of God in our heart, we won't sin against Him. Uh, in 1 John, John's epistle, again, this is from John's gospel, you shall know the truth. But in 1 John 2, he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So how can we distinguish between a lie and the truth? We've talked previously in some of the previous sessions about the Greek word deceive, <clears throat> uh, planao, the devil who deceives the whole world. Uh, but there's another Greek word that is uh, pretty relevant for our purposes this morning, and that's the word pseudos, pseudos. In Greek, the uh, C is the first letter there, and you pronounce the P in the transliteration into English, we, the, the P is silent. It's where we get the English word pseudos, pseudos. And it's the, 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 it's the Greek word lie. In fact, it's used nine times in the New Testament, and every time in the New King James it's translated lie, and that's the word we just looked at in 1 John 2.21, no lie is of... <coughs> The truth. Uh, so we this word pseudos in English <clears throat> sort of lost some of its meaning in the sense of what it originally connoted in the Greek language. <clears throat> so like we might say pseudoscience, and by that we mean it's not real science, it's false science. But in English, the, the word has taken on a more benign meaning, almost similar to incorrect. 
But pseudos in Greek speaks to an intentional falsehood, not something that is merely inaccurate. <clears throat> so if we were more accurate and we said pseudoscience, then pseudoscience would actually be deceitful science, which, as we've talked about in previous weeks, is in fact the case. Most science is bought and paid for. I had lunch <clears throat> this week with someone, and we were talking about the hard sciences versus the soft sciences and so forth, and, and which ones are empirical and which ones aren't. But the fact of the matter is all science is bought and paid for. So, again, the third aspect here is directly contradicting the truth. And Satan blatantly essentially implies death and judgment are an illusion. Um, Eve should have immediately corrected Satan when he contradicted the truth. No, no, that's, that's not what God said. But she didn't. She sat passively by. She agreed with this falsehood when she should have, as we've talked about before, disagreed to agree. That's what we need more people to do. You want to talk about one of the means of combating deception? Be willing to disagree to agree. Stop just going along to keep the peace. You know, stop just being politically correct and not hurting people's feelings. Don't worry about any of that. We're going to see talk about that in just a second. But be willing to stand for the truth. Um, you know, you are not, uh, you, you know, you may be entitled to your opinion, certainly, but no one is entitled to be wrong. You're allowed to be wrong, but you're not entitled to it. Error, falsehood, believing a lie is not an entitlement. You don't get to be wrong. You can be if you choose, but you don't get to anymore than you get to commit any other sin. You can, but it's not an entitlement. We're not entitled to sin. Right? God's Word certainly does not suggest that death and judgment are an illusion the way Satan suggested they are. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. Um, for those who fail to receive the free gift of eternal life, you better believe there's a judgment. Justice will prevail. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more than they can do. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, Fear Him. That's the words of Jesus Christ. And we see this final judgment that God warned about in the garden uh, playing out in Revelation chapter 20. After the 1,000 year millennial earthly reign of Christ, just prior to the new heavens and the new earth, when we read, I saw a great throne and Him who sat on it from whom uh, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. This is all unbelievers. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. This is the dead, unbelieving dead from all ages. By the end of the millennium, they're all dead. They've had the final battle at the end of the millennium, Gog and Magog it's called. Not the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's the same name, but a different battle. But this final battle, all believers are now in heaven in their glorified bodies. That, and they'll be able to come and go to the new earth once it's created. And all unbelievers are in their you know, uh, non-fleshly body as well. And these, all these dead uh, spirits of unbelievers are standing before God. And death and Hades were delivered up uh, who were in them, delivered up who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. See, if you choose to reject the free gift of eternal life by the only one 
who is perfect and sinless, Jesus Christ, then you're left to, to, to have a final judgment based on your own works. And it doesn't matter how many good works you do. You could bring truckloads of books of good works to the great white throne judgment and it's not going to be enough. Why? Because the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. God does not grade on the curve. Uh, and so then it closes out. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So you better believe, contrary to what Satan said, there are judgments. There are several end times judgments that await. For example, the judgment seat of Christ is for all church age believers. Well, we will receive rewards for faithful service during the church age. And these rewards will be uh, doled out in the kingdom. And many of them involve positions of service and privilege in the kingdom. And then, of course, there's the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet. That happened at the second coming a thousand years earlier than the great white throne judgment we just read about. When they're cast into the everlasting, or the lake of fire, rather. <clears throat> and then the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, of course, are the beast and the false prophet that the book of Revelation describes. Then there's the sheep and goats judgment, which occurs at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back. Remember, He separates the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers. To the believers, He says, come right on in to the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. To the unbelievers, He says, depart from Me into the everlasting fire. Now notice... They're in the everlasting fire, not the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet are. The lake of fire is where they're going to be cast at the great white throne judgment. Okay, not the same place, but still a place of torment. Then we see the final judgment of Satan. We just read about that. He first gets punished by the lake of fire, and then the great white throne judgment, where all unbelievers of all ages are cast into the lake of fire. So this chart, by the way, and all any chart you see just about from... Uh, my uh, messages is available in the chart book, um, the Not By Works chart book. So when Satan said, you will not surely die, that was a blatant lie. And that's the third step in the five components, to directly contradict the truth. But then notice in verse 5, we see that he then begins the next step to shift the focus from truth to perception. Now that he's attacked truth, he questioned it, he misrepresented it, then he blatantly contradicted it. Now he's going to shift the focus from truth to perception. Notice what he said in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Is that really what God had said? Notice, for God says. How does Satan know what's in the mind of God? Is that why God issued His warning to Adam and Eve? Because He was jealous and afraid they would be like Him? Nothing in the text whatsoever about that. Satan is literally fabricating this from his own mind. He's completely basing this on perception, not reality. And this is what we see happening all around us today. Reality does not matter. Facts do not matter. It's an age of virtual reality. What matters is perception, style over substance, form over function. I've said before, it's an age where the makeup man is more important than the speechwriter. You know, that's why you got to be blonde-haired and blue-eyed to be a Fox News female anchor. And that's why you got all these, you know, spinning music and circles and icons and things. It's all about the perception. And if you can clear away that and strip away that long enough to listen to the facts, you'll find out you're being deceived on any network. And this really started in earnest after 9-11. You know, in, in prior to 9-11, news really was primarily 
you know, a guy standing before a desk with a sheet of sheets of paper, you know, tornado hits the Midwest, and in other news, you know, car accident on I-25. And then after 9-11, when we went into this 24-7 news cycle, it was all about perception and theme songs. I mean, they could have a hurricane one day, and by 5 o'clock that day, they already had a theme song and a graphic to describe the, the hurricane. Yeah. Can you guys hear me okay? Well, the video can hear it, so I'll just speak loud, and we'll have to change the battery before the message. How about that? Because it's definitely on. Nope, it's on. I, it's been on the whole time, and I haven't touched it, so it's not on mute. The battery probably went dead. So you guys, I'll speak louder, and you can, you should be able to, to hear me. If you need to move up a little bit, that, that's fine. Uh, just remind me to change the battery after this uh, session. So we live in a day where people have little use for facts anymore. You know, don't confuse me with the facts. It's all about perception, where they try to get into your mind, and perception becomes more important than reality. The style, what we, why we think you're saying what you're saying, is more important than what you actually said, right? And uh, I, I want to share a funny little quote. You know, some of you may have read the Cheaper by the Dozen book by Frank B. Gilbert Jr. And if you don't know about that book, you definitely need to read it. It's really uh, a, a precious book. But it tells the story of the Gilbreths, who had 12 children. It's written by Frank and one of the sisters, Ernestine, uh, wrote this book. And uh, there's, a, there's a line in there, one of many lines that we've kind of latched onto and get a chuckle of every time we think about it. But let me set the stage uh, for you. So this is uh, Frank B. Gilbert Jr. talking about their dad. The book is really about their dad. And they said, quote, although he was a strict taskmaster within his home, dad tolerated no criticism of the family from outsiders. Once, a neighbor complained that a Gilbreth boy had called the neighbor's boy a son of an unprintable word. That's the way they write it in the book. And so, Mr. Gilbreth, dad, said this. Well, what are the facts of the matter? Dad asked blandly to the neighbor when he confronted him and then walked away while the neighbor registered a double take. So a humorous example of it's facts that matter. I mean, if that's the case, that's the case. John Adams, our second president, put it this way, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclination, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and of evidence. And this tendency to ignore facts in favor of perception manifests itself in many, many contexts today in the year 2020, but most notably for our discussion of the spirit of pretense, it's at play anytime someone questions an official government narrative about anything. You could go back to 1967 and a CIA document 1030-960 when they coined the term conspiracy theory and recommended using that term to disparage anyone who disavowed or disagreed with the official government narrative. It was in the context of the Warren Commission and the study about the assassination of JFK, and people were beginning to realize that that made no sense. There was nothing whatsoever true about it. It just didn't add up. And so they said, well, we got we got to squelch this, so let's, let's just attack the person instead of dealing with the facts and the questions that they brought up. And so they created this... Um, uh, it was called a document or a dispatch, and it was stamped psych, meaning it was a psychological warfare or part of the psychological operations. 
and it was, by the way, it was released through a Freedom of Information Act to the New York Times in 1976. That's how we know about it. And it was also stamped CS, which was the CIA's code stamp for Clandestine Services Unit. But over time, this became a term that was used to discredit anyone, not just about the JFK assassination. Um, it's, it's discussed often in academic circles and in military training and in CIA training and journals and textbooks. It's called, quote, psycholinguistic tools for mimetic hegemony. What does that mean? Well, meaning you use memes like, you conspiracy theorist, mimetic, to advance and further hegemony, meaning dominance and control by the Luciferian elite. Uh, the same psycholinguistic technique is being used today as it relates to the fake news that we talked about. Remember we talked about that? I showed you how they've created this term, fake news, so that anything that's put out there on the Internet or Facebook or anything you tweet that is actually true, but they don't like it, they can say, oh, it's fake news. And everybody says, oh, it's fake news. Okay, I won't believe it, right? Kaz Sunstein, uh, who was uh, Obama's administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regu Regulatory Affairs, is known for his research into linguistic thought control and subliminal indoctrination as a means of behavior modification. He's probably the leading expert in the world about it. And he's still doing it today. He's writing journal articles. In fact, he wrote uh, one uh, journal article uh, in 2008 from the Journal of Political Philosophy, co-authored with Adrian Vermeule, both of them Harvard lawyers. And the article is titled, Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures. And he recommended implementing a program which he termed cognitive infiltration in which paid government agents would infiltrate truth movements, any groups that don't buy the narrative, undercover and begin to spread misinformation to discredit them. And there's a great book by uh, David Ray Griffin entitled Cognitive Infiltration in which he exposes this. But here's what Kaz Sunstein said in that, said in that journal article. What can government do about conspiracy theories? Well, we can start by banning them, like many countries, China, North Korea, have done. Or, for example, we can impose some kind of a tax. If you post something we don't think is true, guess what? We're going to deduct it straight from your electronic funds using the EFT transfer from your bank account. And uh, I would encourage you, not because I like what he says, but pick up, for example, his 2014 book called Conspiracy Theories and Other Dangerous Ideas. But as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle reminded us, ignoring the facts that are right in front of you is very dangerous. I love this quote from the Boscombe Valley Mystery. He said, there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious quote. Or as Ben Shapiro put it bluntly, facts really don't care about your feelings. See, it's not about perception or why people think you said what you said. It's about the facts of the matter. As Mr. Gilbert said, what are the facts of the matter? Now, aren't you glad Joseph was less concerned with perception and more concerned with reality when he discovered his betrothed wife Mary was pregnant? If he had acted on perception, it would have changed the world. But he stood for truth. So the final step then in these five, four, five components are not only question the truth, then misrepresent it, then directly contradict it, and then shift the focus from truth to perception, and then finally you just invent new meaning for truth. Invent new meaning for truth. Satan redefined the plain meaning of God's Word to suit his own needs. He said again, going back to verse 5, you will be like God. Now God 
did not say anything remotely resembling you will be like God. And yet Satan invents new meaning here. Apparently, when God said, quote, if you eat it, you will die, what he really meant is, if you eat it, you will be like me. I mean, it's completely making up words. It's, it, it, we call that deconstructing the text and recreating it to mean something completely other than what it means. The great last day's deception that is intensifying every day uh, it involves giving new meaning to language. And we've got to remember, uh, as we watch language come profoundly under attack, the, uh, what Friedrich Nietzsche, that German atheist, reminded us, I fear we are not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. See, when you get rid of words and the meaning of words, it's pretty much game over. See, where do, does meaning reside, in the words or with the listener? Who gets to determine the meaning? Is it the person who stated it, or is it sort of some kind of interpretive dance, like a lot of people are suggesting today? It's, you know, I need, you need the listener to help you understand what you mean. <laughs> or, in blatant cases, as in the case of Satan, the listener is the one who gets to determine the meaning, right? But meaning always resides with the original speaker or author. So we can't come to God's Word, for example, and redefine its meaning. We've got to use the nouns, the subjects, the verbs, the grammar, the syntax, the plain, normal meaning of the words on the page to correctly handle the Word of God. So the final step in the anatomy of deception is to invent new meaning for truth so that words no longer have meaning. And again, once we get to this point where words have no intrinsic meaning, it's game over. And, and by the way, I always like to ask, which came first, language or mankind? And a lot of people will say instinctively, oh, well, mankind, because secular humanistic anthropology teaches us that mankind evolved over millions of years from a wet rock and eventually crawled out of the sea and then crawled out of the cave and eventually learned how to create language. But again, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, God spoke the world into existence. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, and God said. And He didn't create man till the sixth day. Language predates mankind. And deception's ultimate aim is to destroy God, to defeat Him, to win this cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. And the ultimate goal of the Luciferian conspiracy is to get to a place where right is wrong and wrong is right. Light is dark and dark is light. Truth is a lie and a lie is the truth. And Satan is trying to supersede everything that God is and everything that God has done. So that's why this battle against deception is paramount. And I think the church has been asleep at the wheel for far too long. And that's the reason we've spent 10 sessions on this spirit of uh, deception, the spirit of pretense. So how do we guard against it? Well, the great passage that sort of gives us the anecdote, if you will, anecdote, if you will, is 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. It's just a good idea to study the topic of deception all around us because it's, it's a command. It's a command. See, we don't study it just because we're interested or it's intriguing or enlightening. We study it because it's commanded. Notice, but test the spirits whether they are of God. The phrase do not believe is one word uh, in Greek. It's may, or actually it's two words, may pistuo, and it's a command. It's in the imperative. And the word test is one word, dokimatso, and it's in the imperative. It's a command. So it, we are commanded 
to study and test things. In fact, the word test, it's used 21 times in the New Testament. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians when he says, test all things, dokimatso, test all things, test all things. In Ephesians 5, it's interesting, dokimatso is translated finding out. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, talking to the Ephesian believers. Walk as children of life, finding out, dokimatso, test, what is acceptable to the Lord. And again, walk, here is a command. It's an imperative. So over the past 15 years or so of studying this topic of the Luciferian conspiracy to take over the world, I can't tell you how many believers tell me they, they don't want to know. They don't have the stomach to find this stuff out. But we're commanded to find out, to test all things. That's the remedy for deception. He goes on in verse 2, back to 1 John 4, know this, but you, you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. In John's day, in the late first century, the issue at hand in that day of falsehood versus truth was the deity of Christ. But notice that such a heretical lie is a manifestation of the spirit of the Antichrist. He said every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. So it's going to take on different forms. Certainly, it's still just as much a lie today when we denigrate the, de the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ or either. But it, it takes on different forms. John goes on to remind us in verse 4, You are of God, little children. You know, I love that. We must never be scared but aware. We must never be scared but prepared. Fear is not of the Lord. And John says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. See, we're on the winning team. We have Christ within us who's already defeated Satan. He contrasts that in verse 5 with they are of the world. Therefore they speak of the world and the world hears them. Three times he mentions it in one sentence or two sentences here. Later John reminds us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So we, it's incumbent upon us to contrast the world's way with God's way. We are of God, he says. And in this case, he's talking specifically about him and the apostles. But as we said earlier, he already said, you are of God. So we're all of God. By this, we know the spirit of truth and error. What is this? John's apostolic authority and teaching. Uh, John's writing and his teaching was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Today, we have the totality of that in God's word. So by this means by God's word. The way to distinguish truth from error is to compare it with what the Bible teaches. That's the reason it's so important that we stay in the Word of God. If you know the Word of God, you'll be in, begin to pick up in a discerning way lies when you hear it, propaganda when you hear it. All right, well, let's pray, and then we will take a break. Father, I thank you for our time together in this first session, and I pray that you would uh, just raise up uh, within the body of Christ believers that are standing firm for truth and able to recognize a deception when we see it. We thank you that you have not left us without witness, but you've given us your word, which is truth. And I pray that you would help us to fall in love with it all over again and just uh, engross ourselves in it, saturate our lives with it, and use it as a grid to validate or invalidate all truth claims. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.